Father, we come before you asking for your grace this morning. Uh, We come before your word with fear and trembling, knowing that you have great authority in your word. God, we ask for you to speak to us and all of our area churches that are worshiping this morning. Lord, let us humble ourselves before you. And Lord, may you speak to us by your spirit and awaken us to live lives that are honoring and lives that are pleasing to you. Lord, we love you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you haven't heard yet, it's coming. It will affect you in some way. As of 2023, an estimated 35% of businesses already use artificial intelligence. AI will power 15% of all customer service interactions around the world soon. Experts predict that AI will replace up to 16% of existing jobs within the next decade. That means for every 10 of you in here, one and a half of you, your job may be replaced by artificial intelligence. However, it will also create new job opportunities as it will create an astounding 97 million new jobs worldwide. Somebody has to train this thing, learn this thing, and teach this thing. AI is coming. The global AI software, software market is expected to reach an impressive $126 billion in just the next two years. Those numbers, we, we can't even fathom those numbers. But here's the deal. Even Microsoft and Google, the biggest technology uh, conglomerates of this day, are banking on artificial intelligence. They have invested the bank into it because AI is coming. Now, when we think about AI, what is it? Some may say it's two letters. It's a city near Jericho. No, AI is some of y'all got that. AI is artificial intelligence. It is a, uh, a computer that is giving answers and responses to things. If you haven't used it yet, uh, it is quite impressive, but also quite problematic because AI spits out what's put in. Artificial intelligence will give you what you tell it to give. Now, as I've mentioned earlier, it will replace many jobs and it can and is suitable to do that. But AI is not human. Artificial intelligence is not human. And so I'd ask you the question for you to begin to think through this. Well, how then is artificial intelligence different than intelligence? Living intelligence. What's so different about it? I could explain it a whole lot of ways, but I'm going to do it this way. 
If you go home and you pull up the artificial intelligence website and ask the same question 36 times in a row, it's not going to get mad at you. However, if you go home and ask your husband, wife, mom, or child the same question 36 times in a row, what will happen? They will get mad at you. That's the difference between artificial intelligence and humanity. Emotion. It's one of many differences, but it's emotion. And this morning we talk about the fact that God has created us as emotional beings. God has created us and given us different emotions. I don't know if you felt it, but even singing this morning stirred emotion in my soul. We, we have been made in the image of God who is also what? An emotional being. Have you read in the scripture that God is angry with sin? That God delights in certain things? That God is rejoices over things? That the Lord grieves when certain things happen. God is an emotional being. We are made in the image of God. We therefore have emotions and we feel things. We hurt. We laugh. We cry. God has given us emotions. This morning we focus on this. How then can we take our emotions and use them appropriately? How can we take the way that God has made us and knit us together in our mother's womb and appropriately use those emotions that God has placed in us? If you have your Bible, I want to invite you to open up to 2 Samuel chapter 1. We begin the, the second portion of the books of Samuel, and we begin to focus a bit on David. But I want to remind you as we're reading, we're reading a much bigger story and and here in our church this year, we have picked up at the very beginning and we're watching a story that we have divided into four sections. One is the first section is creation, meaning that God has created all things and he created it with intent and with purpose. But in the course of things by Genesis chapter what? Three, the fall happens. And for all uh, of history, Mankind has fallen before God. He has, he's a broken creature. And from birth, we have uh, the desire and the intent to go against God's rule in our own life. We want to usurp his authority and be our own God and do our own thing and make our own rules. The fall happened. But God has not left us alone in our fallenness. He has brought through a plan of redemption. And we see that redemption uh, began specifically uh, and, and clearly in Genesis chapter 12 with the family of Abraham. And the Lord promised to Abraham that there would be a king and a nation that would come from him. And that nation would be the people of God. And now we get to 2 Samuel and the kingly line. By the time we get to 2 Samuel chapter 7, we will see the promise of a king that's coming. 
And Christians, we know that king and his name is what? His name is Jesus. But before we get there, we have many stories to deal with. And this is one of them, 2 Samuel. And today we look at how does David, one pawn, if you will, in God's greater chess match and God's greater story, how does David deal with life as it comes at him? Does he deal appropriately emotionally with the things that come at him? And then what does he give to us? What did he leave behind for us to see how maybe we can do a little bit better? That's where we are today. 2 Samuel chapter 1. Now, David has been being chased for context for this passage. David has been, been being chased by a guy named Saul. Saul has been trying to kill him. Saul was the current king. Uh, Saul wanted to kill David because he was threatened by David. David had opportunities to kill Saul, but did not take advantage of those opportunities because he respected the position that Saul was in as king. And then Saul goes into battle with his son, Jonathan, and they die in a fierce battle. And that's how 1 Samuel ends. So we pick up here at the beginning of 2 Samuel. There was a young man who came to Saul. And he said to him, by chance, I happened to be on Mount Gilboa and there was Saul leaning on his spear. And behold, the chariots and the horsemen were close upon him. And when he looked behind him, he saw me and he called to me and I answered, here I am. And he said to me, who are you? And I said, I am an Amalekite, a foreigner. I am an Amalekite. And he said to me, stand beside me and kill me for anguish has seized me and yet my life still lingers. So I stood behind beside him and I did what? And I killed the king because I was sure that he could not live after he had fallen. And I took the crown that was on his head and the armlet that was on his arm. And I brought them here to you, my Lord. Then David took hold of his clothes and and he tore them. And so did all the men who were with him. And they mourned and they wept. And they fasted until evening for Saul and for Jonathan, Saul's son and David's dear friend. And for the people of the Lord and for the house of Israel, because they had fallen In this battle by the sword. And David said to the young man who were with him. The young man. The Amalekite who came with him. Where do you come from? And he answered. I'm the son of a sojourner. I'm an Amalekite. David said to him. How is it. That you were not afraid to put out your hand. And destroy the Lord's anointed. Then David called one of his young men and he said, go execute the Amalekite. And so he struck him down so that he died. And David said to him, your blood be on your head for you by your own mouth. You've testified against you saying, I have killed the Lord's anointed. Wow, what a beginning to this next section. And and what a story to to walk through. You've got David, a man who's been chased down 
by a man named Saul, the king. And he finds out that the king is dead. The guy who's been chasing him for approximately how many years? Seven years. He's been hunted. Hunted. Have you ever felt hunted? How about doing it for seven years? And finally, the one who's hunting you down is dead. And what does he do? He doesn't throw a party. He doesn't rejoice. What's the first thing that Saul does? I'm sorry, that David does. He grieves. What's wrong with this story? It doesn't quite make sense, does it? In fact, he grieves before he does anything else for hours before he even talks to the man that brought him that news. Go back, look at verse 11. He tore his clothes. And so did everybody with him. They mourned, they wept, they fasted until the evening. He was broken hearted for Saul, for his king. And for Jonathan, his dear friend, the king's son. This was his first response. Grief. Now, we've read it in narrative form. And then immediately after, what we're going to see is David goes into song. Now, now here's where where I'd like to pivot a bit and, and introduce to you something. Upwards of 30% of the scripture that we have is either in poetic form or in song. 30%. You add to that about 15% in apocalyptic, meaning highly, uh, highly um, imagery, uh, very uh, uh, symbolic. This is apocalyptic. of the Bible is not written in narrative. You know that? We better know how to read stuff that's not narrative. And so this morning we'll look at the the psalm that uh, that David sings or that David writes. It it is something that is is full of of imagery. Uh, It is full of repetition. It's full of metaphors. Uh, And of course, it's full of emotion. And so this morning, as we're thinking about how do we as emotional beings, non-AI bots, how do we as emotional beings deal with things? Uh, Let's look at the poem he writes, and it it begins in chapter 19. Are y'all with me? I I know that poetry may not have been your favorite class in, in school. I can tell you my first B at LSU was in a class, was in a poetry class. But the first year made all A's, got a B In a poetry class. My emotion was not very happy at that time. Here's the poem. Your glory, O Israel, is slain in your high places. Your glory, talking about the king. How the mighty have fallen. Tell it not in Gath, which is in the land of the Philistines. Tell it not in Gath. Publish it not in the the streets of Ashkelon. Lest the daughters of the Philistines rejoice, lest the daughters of the uncircumcised exult. You mountains of Gilboa, let there be no dew or rain among you, nor fields of offering. 
For there the shield of the mighty was defiled. The shield of Saul. Not anointed with oil. From the blood of the slain. From the fat of the mighty. The bow of Jonathan. Turned not back. And the sword of Saul returned not empty. Saul and Jonathan. Beloved and lovely. In life and in death. They were were not divided. They were swifter than eagles. They were stronger than lions. You daughters of Israel. Weep over Saul. Who clothed you luxuriously in scarlet. Who put ornaments of gold on your apparel. How the mighty have fallen in the midst of battle. Jonathan lies slain on your high places. Dial in right here. I am distressed for you, my brother Jonathan. Very pleasant have you been to me. Your love to me was extraordinary, surpassing the love of women. Oh, how the mighty have fallen and the weapons of war perished. Question for us this morning. How do we deal appropriately with with grief? Here is David, a man who says, I've lost a friend that's closer to me than all of my wives. He was faithful. He, He risked his life for me. He recognized me for who I I was. And and as this poetically gets poured out, you see the emotion and the love that he had. It's not like reading a narrative and Saul died. And there his son Jonathan with him. You see the pouring out of emotion from David of I lost my best friend. He was so near. He was so dear to me. So the question then comes up once again. How do we deal appropriately with grief? Grief is a huge problem. I don't know if you're you're aware, but, but there are people right now in this building who are hurting. There are people who have lost loved ones. Um, sadness is something that, that sometimes overtakes our soul. I, I talked to EL this morning. Yesterday was the was it the fifth anniversary where his fantastic bride passed away. Grief is something that will take you and and spin you down a spiral and leave you in a place where where that's all that you feel down at the, the bottom of the vortex. Unless we properly deal with grief, it is a poison that slowly but surely destroys everything about us. So what do we as Christians who who God made us with this capacity to grieve, what do we do with that? The primary thing that I share with you this morning is is this. We have to deal with it. Avoiding, Avoiding the hurricane doesn't make the hurricane go away. 
We have to deal with it. And, and remember that God made us with capacity to grieve for a reason. But there is a godly way to grieve. And there is a, an ungodly way to grieve. And if we go and, 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 and open the curtain and say, I'm willing to deal with the grief. I'm willing to embrace it. I'm willing to see it and do what I need to. I'm willing to bring my grief to God and say, Lord, help me through my grief. That is where we find the way out of the storm. We are emotional beings. And as emotional beings, we we must find an anchor or a root or those emotions will, will drive us crazy and lead us to a point oftentimes of no return. So what do we do? Psalms 34 verse 18. If you're grieving this morning, please hear me. And if you're not grieving this morning, prepare yourself. There will be a day. Psalm 34, 18. Know this. Know this. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted. The Lord is near to those who are grieving. But that's not it. He is near to you, grieving soul, but he also does something. He also, help me out church, he he saves the crushed in spirit. If you are walking through a difficult valley, if you are walking through pain, know that God is not far away. The Bible tells us he is near you and he saves the crushed in spirit. C.S. Lewis, an author uh, from England uh, many years ago, but he says this, uh, one of his famous quotes says this, God shouts in our pain. God shouts in our pain. It is his megaphone that he uses to rouse a deaf world. Oftentimes it is in our pain that we listen to God or hear him most clearly. As John Piper would say, don't waste your trial. Don't waste the struggle you're in. Hear what God has to say. He is near the brokenhearted. He saves the crushed in spirit. And and know this, Christians, we as Christians must grieve differently than people who are not believers. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 verse 13 says this. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who have died. That you may not grieve as others do who have no what? Who have no hope. So Paul's message, the context of 1 Thessalonians is that people had died. And and they thought that they were not going to go and be with the Lord. Because they had died. They thought, well, you had to remain alive so that when Jesus came back, you could Rule and reign with him. And Paul is saying, look, don't grieve. Don't grieve in the ways that others do. Those who have no what? Those who have no hope. And so so let me give this to you. As you mourn the loss of a spouse or a child or a parent or a friend. As you mourn a, a, a hurt From a relationship that may have been strained or broken. 
The Psalms mean something. God is near the brokenhearted, and He saves those who are crushed in spirit. And we as Christians can grieve in a way that has hope among us. Hope for us. We do not grieve as others who have no hope. Let me tell you why we have hope, Christian. We as Christians historically have always believed that Jesus Christ is a ruler from heaven. And that he rules and created and rules over heaven and earth. And while bad things happen, God is sovereign and that he rules over things and nothing happens apart from his will. Now, we all remember when Jesus spoke on the Sermon on the Mount, he said, Are not two sparrows sold for a penny, yet not one of them does what? Not one sparrow, not, not the half a penny bird falls to the earth apart from the will of my father or apart from my father. He said, following that, even the what? Even the hairs or lack of, thereof, hairs on your head are numbered. Zero is a number, right? Even the hairs on your head or the lack thereof are numbered. We have hope in a God who we have been reconciled with through Jesus Christ cares for us. And that anything that comes to pass is not too big or too problematic for God not to work together for good. Do you know Romans 8, 28? It's a verse that I memorized as a teenager. I still remember it. If you don't know Romans 8, 28, please learn it. It says this. All things work together for good for those who what? Who love God and who are called according to his purposes. There it is. Why do we grieve with hope? Because we know that all things are working together for good. And while one thing may be bad or difficult for us, and that relationship may be forever gone. We know that God is working something bigger in this. David grieved the loss of his king. David grieved the loss of his best and closest and dearest friend. But Christian brothers and sisters, we grieve with hope. Because the Lord heals up and he binds up our wounds. Psalm 147.3 says this. He, the Lord, heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. If you're hurting today, bring your hurt. Open the curtain. Draw near to God. The scripture says, and he will draw near to you. Bring your grief, your pain to the Lord and say, Lord, I hurt Cry some tears before him and do business to begin to be able to grieve in hope that he will make everything right. And that's where faith comes. Now that there's one qualification for all of this. And it is a a massive qualification. And that is this, you must know God in the right way. 
Right, Wayne? If you don't know Jesus, if you have not humbled yourself to your own rule and reign, if you have not come to Jesus and said, you are my king, I give authority in my life to you, I will humble myself before you like a child and enter into the kingdom of heaven. I walk away from my own rule and I give it to you, Jesus. Then the Bible says you are an enemy of God. But for all who love God, as we saw Romans 8, 28, for those who are called according to his purpose, he draws near. And there's but one way. Repent and believe the gospel of Jesus Christ. Be saved. Draw near to God and he will bind up your wounds. Secondly. Secondly. David grieved. What did David do after he grieved? Were y'all paying attention? He grieved, he was sad, he tore his clothes, he fasted, and his next order of business was what? He had some some accounting to take care of, didn't he? Justice. Justice must be done. Now, this, this story of this Amalekite coming to David... And saying, I saw Saul, he was there, and he he begged me, put me out of my mercy. And so I killed him, and I am the nice guy, king. And look, I know he's been attacking you, I brought proof. Aren't you happy now? The guy that's been chasing you around, he's dead. I did it. What, What do I get? There are, there are many ways to look at this story and to read it. Um, several of the commentators that I, I really trust, they believe that this story is fabricated. Uh, that this is a lot based on some of the things that happened at the end of 1 Samuel. And you're seeing this story. We're not certain. Regardless, what we do know are a few things. And, and I mean fabricated by the Amalekite, not by the Bible. Uh, meaning the Amalekite is telling a lie to get a favor out of the king. Regardless of the way that this, this story is interpreted and what the truth is, here's what we know. Imagine yourself as the future king of Israel. Imagine. Or queen. Okay. Someone comes to you and says, all right, look, I took out the king. Now you can be the king. Do you want king killers hanging around you? Do you want the atmosphere, the, the, the environment of people that are okay with taking the life of a king, hanging around you, the king? I, I've really thought through this. Why would David kill a guy who was trying to help him or, or at least it, it seemed like that and, and look we have another instance in chapter 4 I'm going to read it quickly this is chapter 4 a similar thing happens uh, there are two guys I'm not going to read it I'm running a little bit behind today but there are two guys who come and, and, and they take out the next king so Saul dies and they institute one of Saul's sons to be the next king Rather than David being the next king, which is what God said would be. 
that David would be the king. So two guys come, and while Ishbosheth, who's the Saul's son, while he's in his bed, these two guys sneak in and they stab him in the stomach and kill him. And they bring, it's kind of nasty, they bring his head back to David and they say, Look, David, we, we killed the other king. Will you reward us? And, and guess what David does to these king killers? He, he kills them. Uh, the, the atmosphere and environment of being a king killer around David is not a good place to be. David has a, a, a craving for justice. This is a king. He was in his bed and you expect me to be happy that you killed him? This is not right. David has a, a, an innate emotional response of this is wrong and you must be held accountable. You have taken the life of the king. Let me read to you in in poetic form this craving for justice. Psalm Psalm 7, beginning of verse 8. The Lord judges the peoples. Judge me, O Lord, according to my righteousness and according to the integrity that is in me. O let the evil of the wicked come to an end. And may you establish the righteous, you who test the minds and hearts. O righteous God. Now there it is in in poetic form. God, I know that you're righteous. I know that you do what's right and you judge people and you have a standard of right and wrong. So the next question, how do you deal with grief? You go to God. He is the healer. You are honest. You believe and you trust him that he's going to work all things together for good for those who love him. Secondly, how do, we, how do we deal, like uh, David did, with this sense of justice? Now, I think most of y'all in this room were around for the 2020 year, right? Yeah, yeah, you're around, most of them, yeah. Let's flash back for a moment to what was consuming in the news during the lockdown that we had. When everybody was... Home, supposed to be in their houses. What was going on in the world during that season? (laughs) We would see fires on TV and we would see uh, marches and we would see uh, speeches. And there there were things that people were doing because they were not happy with justice and the uh, the. Their mentality was that things are not right in our country and in our world today. We have to come and make things right. Now, this is not a political statement. This is asking you to engage in the fact that humanity has an overwhelming sense within them that things need to be right. Justice needs to be done. And whether you are a Christian or not, there is an innate working within us that justice must be done. Or things are not right in this world. And we have to speak a voice for justice to be done. It is why we have law enforcement. Thank you, Mr. Cody, for serving. We value justice in our culture today. 
Because we believe that if someone does something wrong, that our system will make it right. And, and, and there are things that are not right in our system that we've got to fix. But there, there's an outpour of emotion and crying. I can tell you this. You, AI, artificial intelligence, is not upset that justice is not done. Humanity is upset that justice is not done. So how do we appropriately deal with that? How do we appropriately deal with it? What do we as Christians, how do we think of justice? Well, first of all, we have to know that there is a root for justice. And if we as Christians don't appropriately look at the root of right and wrong, we will establish our own ideals and our own things that we believe are right or that our group believes are right. And then we will go head to head with others fighting for those things. But if we don't give ourselves to the root of justice, then we as Christians, we may not even be fighting for the right causes. Let me give you an example. I'm going to continue in Psalm 7. My shield is with God who saves the upright in heart. God is a righteous judge and a God who feels indignation every day. He sees the injustice. He is unhappy with it as well. Watch this though. If a man does not repent, God will wet his sword. He will sharpen. He will get it ready for us. He has bent and readied his bow. He has prepared him for his deadly weapons, making his arrows fiery shafts. What does this mean? It means this, that God has even a deeper sense of justice than we do. And we are made, according to the scripture, in the image of God. And the reason we care about right and wrong is because God cares about right and wrong. Christian, what does that mean then we do? Watch this. I'm going to go back to Isaiah. Oh, man. And we'll close with this. We'll close with this. How do we as Christians deal with that innate sense of justice? We, we establish our, our claims and our emotions on the root of justice. Watch it. Isaiah 9 verse 2. The people who walked in darkness. In poetic form again. Have seen a great light. Those who dwell in a land of deep darkness. Upon them a light has shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its what? Its joy. They rejoice before you. The light has come. They rejoice before you as with the joy of the harvest. As they are glad when they divide the spoil after winning a battle. For the yoke of his burden and the staff on his shoulders... The rod of his oppressor you have broken. There is freedom as on the day of Midian. For every boot, every battle boot of the trampling warrior. And battle tumult and every garment that's been rolled in blood from the battle. 
They're going to be burned as fuel for the fire. There'll be no need anymore. For to us, a child is born. For to us, a son is given. And the government will be on his shoulders. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor. His name shall be called Mighty God. His name shall be called Everlasting Father. His name shall be called the Prince of what? Of Peace. And of the increase of his rule, his authority, his government, and of his shalom, his peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, that is Jesus, the son of David, to establish it, to uphold it with what? Help me out. This is right. To establish this peace, to establish this rule And to uphold it with what, church? With justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. When the sun comes, there will be an established kingdom of justice and righteousness. So church, how do we do this? How do we take this innate sense of of justice? Here's what we do. We know the root of justice is in Christ himself. That he has created a universe. That is to show and proclaim who he is. And so Christian, our job is to take our craving, our emotion, our our drive and say, we want the right thing to be done. The right thing in Jesus Christ's eyes. He is the root of right. He is the root of what is not right. He establishes what is true. So Christian. If your heart yearns to to do something meaningful, to establish right and wrong, you take Christ's rule and you apply it first to yourself. Am I doing what Jesus would have me do? Then you apply it into your own home. This is the standard we will have at our home. Then you establish it at your church. This is the standard we will have at the church. And then you establish it in whatever areas of influence you have at school, at your job. And you say, I want to passionately give myself to establishing what God has put in my soul, the right and the wrong, coming from his word. We are emotional beings. We are emotional beings. Grief is a massive part of, of life. More for some than even others. This sense of justice, and I didn't finish. I've got a whole nother one. We'll jump on that maybe next week even. It may fit in quite nicely. God made you with a drive, with an emotion. He made you not to be a bot. Not to be passive. Not to be unanimated. He made you to go and do things. Find the emotions God has given you and God has given you strong emotions in certain areas. Line them up with what the scripture teaches and go use those emotions in the appropriate way that God has filled you with. That you may honor God and establish justice or help those who are grieving or spread joy. In whatever way you have emotions Go and use them for the kingdom's sake.
Let's pray together. Father, you have given us your son. He has shown us what is right and good and true. Oh God, help us to use us in the way you've created us to make a difference. Using our emotions and our passions to spread the glory of Jesus Christ the Lord. May we find the root, the truth. May we proclaim it because Jesus is our King. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.